Namaste. Greetings. Welcome to Indigenous Insights. I'm your host, Gladys Rowe, and I'm so grateful you are here. Each episode, I sit in conversation with Indigenous evaluation practitioners, leaders, researchers, and scholars who are working in, thinking about, and supporting Indigenous evaluation to share the learning they've experienced along the way. My hope is that these episodes allow you to reflect on how to design, implement, learn from, and support evaluation by, with, and for Indigenous families, communities, organizations, and nations. Join me and my guests as we open up our evaluation bundles to share what we've gathered in our journeys and bring them together into this space. I hope in these stories you will come to understand how we can collectively contribute to decolonial futures and strengthen Indigenous resurgence. Well, welcome back, Terilyn. I'm so excited to have you here for a second time. We left off last time and I felt like we could have talked for days. There's just so much that I know that you still have in there that you're excited to share. So I'm glad to have you here today. I'm wondering if you'd like to share just a a really quick reintroduction to yourself for the audience as they jump into this episode with us. Yeah. Well, well, Gladys, nice to see you again. It's great to be here and, and sitting with you. Well, I Fern. As mentioned on the first podcast, my English name is Terilyn Fern. I'm Ilnu or Mi'kmaq. I'm Snake Clan, member of the Wabanaki Confederacy. But I'm joining you today on Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territories, where I live in relationship with these lands and work with and for the people here. So thanks for having me again today. You are so welcome. The pleasure is all mine. As usual, you know, when we were preparing for this time together in conversation way back in 2022, there were a couple of things that we just didn't get to last podcast. And so I wanted to make sure that we had the time today. And the first, I think, is a really big area that has certainly been around like health research in my experience in health research in the mid 2000s, Indigenous health research is this idea of two-eyed seeing. And I know this has been something that you've been thinking about and working on and taking further in your thinking and your doing. And so, yeah, just an invitation to jump into talking about two-eyed seeing and what that means for learning, evaluation, inquiry. And I'm going to leave it with that question. Yeah, thanks. Let me start by just sharing a little bit more. I know uh, in the first podcast, I shared a little more in depth about my paternal grandmother in my Mi'kmaq lineage. And I want to share a little bit about my maternal grandmother, who is the late Marion Duty. And she, on my mother's side, is all Irish ancestry and Irish lineage. And it's so interesting because my Irish family came over in the mid-1800s from Sligo County and Cork County, Ireland, and they landed in Mi'kma'ki which is in Nova Scotia, which is the traditional homelands of my grandmother's people. So I always think about, you know, these introductions and when we introduce ourselves, how do we show up in these spaces? How do we bring our ancestors to the conversations and the spaces that we're inhabiting? And so I really want to shine a light today on my ancestral lineage and my Irish ancestry, because it's really important. And I think that it really relates to when we, we talk about two-eyed seeing, you know, one of our late Tuscarora elders, uh, Rosa Mai, 
She used to say that we were so fortunate as Indigenous people with other lineages because we had this wonderful bicognitive ability to sort of live and learn and sense-make within two knowledge systems. And I really feel that in present in the work that I do, that I have this beautiful Irish lineage and this Mi'kmaq lineages that enables me to move a little bit back and forth or actually maybe round myself more in my Mi'kmaq way of knowing, but it helps me to understand the perceptions and the understanding, the experience of that other Western knowledge system as well. And so when I was sharing in the last podcast that I journeyed for 13 moons around the sacred fire of peace in an inquiry to sort of help to understand what I might learn to contribute to the transformative change that's needed during these times, Part of that was to really also deepen, cultivate a deeper understanding of who I am. When I finished with the National Inquiry, as I mentioned in the last podcast, one of my elders, uh, Megha Mahan, and, and she's a Mi'kmaq Wabanaki woman. She is a grandmother. Sometimes I think she's more like my big sis. Sometimes she reminds me of my grandmother, but she's one of the elders that sits on our circle of elders and knowledge carriers. She had said, you know, for us to really understand who we are as Ilnu women, as Mi'kmaq women, as Wabanaki women of the dawn, that we have to learn our language, that everything is encoded within our language, who we are, how we are, where we come from, all the sacred gifts that that we carry. So I've been really on a journey when COVID started to sort of deepen my understanding and, and learn my language. So while I was around the sacred fire for 13 moons, you know, during COVID, there was a lot of access to different language programs in our home communities. So I took a couple of virtual courses. One of the courses that I took, they sent me a package in the mail and it had flashcards and I joined in on Zoom and they started with an opening prayer by the elders and they asked everyone to stand up and to bless themselves and do the Lord's Prayer. And this was in 2021, how they were virtually teaching language courses in my territory. And so I thought, you know, it sort of feels like a little bit of a virtual residential school, and it really wasn't how I wanted to learn the language. Flashcards and language repetition, it was kind of a Western way of teaching, and that's not what I wanted. I wanted to understand the livingness, the living spiritness of our language. So I signed up for another language course. And again, that wasn't quite the way of learning. So I reached out to my elders and said, I'm wanting to learn the language. Here's my experience. And they said, we'll teach you. And so I set up for the past three years weekly meetings with her to learn the deepened sense of the language. And on Facebook during COVID, we had one of our language speakers was doing little Facebook sessions where he would do like a word a day. And he shared this word, skedegamuch, and I thought, oh, I know that word. I heard my dad talk about that word. I know what it means. It means like the way of the devil. And I was kind of proud of myself, like, I know what this word means. And when he shared the meaning of the word, he shared that it is skedegamuch, the Milky Way, the ancestor's road. It's the road that our ancestors traveled, that we all traveled from the spirit world to this realm. And I was just stopped in my tracks because I couldn't believe the difference in the understanding of what my father had shared and understood and had passed on to me 
and what the true meaning of that was. And it really was the first time that the resonance of colonization, the resonance of genocide, the resonance of what my elder Mi'kma'han calls the great disruption was really real through the language for me. And it was really hard. And so it got me thinking and wondering, oh my goodness, like if that description of such a sacred spiritual part of our creation story was changed, what else in our language don't I know? What else has been erased? So I started to learn the feminine aspects of the creation story. And, you know, in our territory, Mi'kma'ki contact began in the late 14th century. And it was through that that the settlers learned our language, and then they changed our epistemology. They embedded a Christian worldview within our language. And so they extracted a lot of the feminine. They extracted a lot of the stories. They changed a lot of what it was to be Mi'kmaq, what it was to be Ilnu. And that, as mentioned, that's upheld today. And so (laughs) when I was thinking about, you know, if our language is supposed to be the pathway to understanding who we are as Ilnu people and how we are in relation with all of creation, and the feminine essence is erased, what is my responsibility to reclaim that, to restore the sacred feminine. And so I went on a bit of a journey through those 13 moons, in addition to learning the language, to understand the deepened meaning. And Mi'kma'han always says, you know, we have to unwind the colonization within us. We have to unravel that and rebuild our connection. And so that's what I did around, around the sacred fire, was rebuilding my connection to who I am as a Ilnu woman, and what does that mean? And what does the sacred feminine mean? And how can we restore that through our language? So in the process of restoring language, she shared with me many, many teachings. Her first language is uh, Mi'kmaq, her second language is English. And so she works with many clan mothers and grandmothers that have been trying for the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years to bring back restoring the sacred feminine in our language and in our governance structures and our family systems and really rematriating, bringing back that sacred feminine in the way of life. So I was on a bit of a path, you know, as I'm turning myself inside out to indigenizing consciousness and really looking at what does that mean for identity for myself as a 49-year-old woman going through this process, for young people, for my nieces, for my nephews, for my friends' children, for community? What does it mean for young women that are trying to claim power and place and understanding who they are and, and restoring the sacred feminine? And it means that we, we have to go to the language. So that's what I'd like to talk about today, because when we focused on rematriating the feminine in the language, it's really brought about... It's really created a pathway on how to do this work and a pathway that will lead to transformative change. So much resting in just the opening that you're bringing forward. And before we kind of explore, you know, the pathway that you're talking about, I, I want to ask a question that it just comes from my lack of understanding about this pathway that we're about to walk down as you share your stories and and the wisdom that you've gathered through this reclamation process. And the question that I want to ask is, when you think about the work of restoring 
the sacred feminine, how does that connect to fit with or understand, you know, our community members who are two-spirit, gender diverse, trans, how does that, the reclamation connect with who they are? Oh, this is such a great and really important question. And it's very relevant nowadays. And I think one of my elders always says that connection is the correction. And one of the impacts of colonization and this sort of internalized oppression that we all experience and carry, not only as Indigenous people, but as our Black brothers and sisters and Two Spirits as well, is this siloing, this good or badness, this one or the other and the othering that continues to happen in the places and spaces that we occupy And my understanding of, you know, I identify not as a two-spirit person, but I identify as Ilnu, which Ebit, which Ilnu is like the original people in every Indigenous nation. You know, they're the original peoples. They have a term that connects them to the originators of that place, of that land. And Ebit in our language, you know, if you look in our dictionary, it says woman. But what it really means when you break that word, it means, you know, like carrier of the eggs, you know, the vessel through which life comes through. And I think that's really important when I think about the sacred feminine. I think about our different intelligences that we have, our physical, mental, emotional, our spiritual intelligences. And I think about the feminine intelligences that are the heart medicine, you know, our emotions, our spiritual sense, our spiritual essence. And then I think about our physical bodies and the physical intelligences that we all have as humans, as two-leggeds, and then our mental intelligences as well. And so in my understanding, you know, we all as two-legged beings encapsulate masculine and feminine energies, you know, masculine and feminine intelligences. And so when I heard an elder share once, and I thought it was really beautiful, they actually was Sherry Mitchell, my sister, Wabanaki sister, Sherry Mitchell, and she likened two-spiritedness and the importance of the masculine and the feminine and the space in between, the sacred, sacred space in between, she spoke about like our pipes. And so, you know, you have the stem of the pipe and the bowl of the pipe and the bowl of the pipe represents the feminine entity and the stem represents the masculine entity. And that energy of that pipe, that spirit of that pipe is not activated until both of those come together. And the masculine, you have to draw the air from the pipe that draws from the feminine bowl before you can inhale that smoke and send those prayers up to the creator. And it's similar to our bodies, you know. Everybody thinks our rational mind is is our mental intelligences and our mind is a decision maker. However, a lot of times we refer to that rational mind as male energy. But the heart has you know, 40,000 neurons that sends messages to your brain. And so your brain doesn't make decisions on its own. It actually consults with the heart. And the heart, through our emotions, tells the brain what to do, how to do, and then the brain makes a decision and then it physically enacts. And so when I think about how I understand the sacred feminine is it's that, that intelligence, that spiritual and emotional intelligence that really has been not put forward as an acceptable way to be in, you know, a patriarchal society that folks that live a spiritual way or present in a heart-based emotional intelligence way predominantly, it's not necessarily accepted. And so as I understand, and again, I'm not two-spirit, and as I understand two-spiritedness, 
it's that beautiful balance of the masculine and the feminine energies. And you know, one of my elders shares with me that when we're born through our mother's vessel and brought into this physical realm, that those that are two-spirited identified, they come fully balanced. And so they have this beautiful abilities to dance equally in balance with the masculine and the feminine. And they're very sacred. It's sacred beings that, that are brought into our earthwalk. And a lot of the work that I used to do was around family systems and working with families. And, and again, a beautiful elder shared once, you know, that a lot of our two-spirit relatives are being born during these times and coming forward during these times. And they're needed because they're caregivers of our children. And they're coming forward during these times because we have lost our way to care for the children and they're coming forward to do so. So they're healers, they're medicine people, they're healers. And I think that we can't talk about restoring the sacred feminine without talking about our two-spirited relatives and gender diverse relatives. So thank you so much for bringing that attention and inviting them into this space and this dialogue. Thank you for sharing those connections and really going deeper for me to build that foundation of understanding. And something that stood out for me is that connection is correction. That's such a lovely phrase. Yeah, it was uh, Jane Middleton Maas, Anishinaabe elder, that shared that with me. She was actually really instrumental in, she's done a lot of work for ACOA in the U.S., the Alcohol Children's of Alcoholics and She's done tons of reconciliation work in our communities, of healing our, our communities. And when I was living in the Kwanlin-speaking territory, she hosted a workshop at, out in Seyut, I think, one of the communities. And I went and I remember sitting in a circle. I was 26 at the time, so a young person. And she did a family system structure. So we all sat in a circle and she invited players to enact a role in the center of the circle. And so she... She set up a family system with an alcoholic parent, an alcoholic father was the system, and then the mother, and then she brought in the children, and they all had to sort of act in a way that she self-guided. And I remember looking at this description of this family system and going, wow, I understand now. I really, I could see myself as, you know, this born family. I could see my siblings. I saw my parents. It, it really made sense. And actually, it was so impactful that it was when I started my healing journey, when I took my parents off a pedestal and realized that they each had their own stories of how they came in to be my parents. And so I decided when I was 26 that I was going to have difficult conversations with them to better understand how I could move through and bring forward the beautiful things that I've learned from them and were taught by them. And then to work through the other things, you know, a little bit of the nastiness from the internalized colonization and oppression that sort of we saw the resonance of that in my family. So she was really instrumental. And, you know, a couple of years ago before COVID, she developed the Indigenous Trauma and Resiliency Master's Program at the University of Toronto. And I had a chance to be a part of the governance group in that and work with her closely as we oversaw that program. And I had a chance to tell her, actually, it's not often that you have a chance to really tell people that profoundly changed her life. But I shared that story with her. So yeah, connection is the correction. And I remember her always saying that. And I think about that often as rebuilding relational connections. You know, the work I do is grounded in relationality and care. And it's all about 
rebuilding and bridging our connections to not only who we are, but our interpersonal connections, our family connections, and that connection to our Earth Mother and all of creation as well. Wonderful. And that really is a thread. I think that's come through a few of the conversations that I've had on this podcast around, you know, really knowing who you are and where you come from in order to know where you're going and what your purpose is. And you're bringing your whole self into this space, you know, as someone who is committed to doing this work with communities and really thinking about how to go deeper through your understanding that language holds so much of the knowledge about how we rebuild that connection, how you rematriate, like you shared. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through a little bit of the thinking you've been doing around this idea of rematriation and the sacred feminine and how it relates to the work that we need to do in knowledge gathering and in inquiry, you know, and how it might thread into the work of evaluation and innovation too, which I know you're thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to share our stories and sort of be really open and transparent about the work we do. You know, it's part of our accountabilities that we're doing this work in a good way. And when I was going back to around the sacred fire for 13 moons and learning the language, there's a petroglyph that is from our territory that one of my elders, Megamahan, was, we were sharing about it and talking about it. And I was asking some questions during one of our weekly sessions when she was teaching me the language. And it's a petroglyph of the eight-pointed star. And you'll see the eight-pointed star all over uh, Megmagi. And I was asking her questions about it and, and the teachings of the eight-pointed star. And she said, you know, there's right next to that petroglyph of the eight-pointed star is another smaller petroglyph, but nobody really speaks about it. And we call it the capsule, but really what it is, it's an image of the Pallades constellation, and it has a bit of a capsule, and it has what to me looks like a spider on a web coming down, and it really is the feminine entity. So it's not surprising that it's not talked about because it, it has been erased from a lot of our stories and a lot of our understanding, but that Pallades, that eight-star constellation, that's a really sacred time and sacred teachings uh, for us. And it's the feminine and that that spider that hangs down, we call Gogamij, she is the one that knitted and woven that eight-pointed star petroglyph. And that really is a pathway for humanity on how to be. And when I started to deepen my understanding about this petroglyph, which really is, is from my territory, we started to look towards the language and look at the teachings and what I found out was that that petroglyph, if you take that image and you put it flat, sort of like a lodge, you know, it sits kind of as a lodge, and that star formation of that petroglyph forms the body of the lodge, and that's our moon lodge. And that's the moon lodge where we do all our women teachings, all our feminine teachings, you know, it's the structure, it's the sacred geometry structure that is really powerful. And so some of the elders have been creating these moon lodges and bringing back the teachings. And I was really fascinated with that because at the center of that moon lodge is the sacred fire. And I was engaging in sacred fire as pedagogy throughout my learning process. So I was thinking, how is this all connected? And what might I learn when we bring about this? Uh, Megha Mahan said one day, you know, this petroglyph is a sphere. It's, it's not one-dimensional, two-dimensional, it's multi-dimensional. She said, like our language, 
And I said, Mehdi Wapdamonk, I said, I've heard that before. Two-eyed seeing is, in our language, what we call Ed Wapdamonk. And two-eyed seeing is a guiding principle brought forward by the late Merdina Marshall and her husband, Albert Marshall, back in 2004. And it's this notion of, you know, we have two eyes and from one eye we look through the Western worldview and through the other eye we look through Indigenous worldview and that we come together to better understand these knowledge systems and, and way of seeing. And so it sort of informs that you have to come together in this way to get a more expansive way of understanding uh, the work that you're trying to do. Specifically, it was brought forward in integrative science. And so we started down this rabbit hole of looking at Meduaptamank. And when you add that mech, that M, that is this multidimensional, that mech is the more expansive way of understanding the energies of creation, this multi-perspectives, multi-dimensions. And Megamahan said, you know, she said, Edoptimum sits at the center of a process on the way to Meduaptamank. And the first part of that process is called Geduaptamank. And it's about how you enter into the inquiry that you're doing. So if you're doing research, evaluation, whatever it is you're inquiring, you're Geduaptamank, you're stepping into this place and you're preparing yourself. It's the preparation that you need to do before you can come to even sitting together and learning and exchanging different knowledge systems. You have to prepare yourself. It's like different ceremonies. There's protocols around preparation. When we fast, we prepare for 30 days and, and different things that we do in preparation. And it requires us to do some, you know, reflections and introspection. It, it requires us to discern as we're engaging on this inquiry, you know, who am I coming into this process? What have I worked on? What do I need to work on? What are my expectations? What kind of knowledge system am I privileging and I stepping into? You know, what are some of the, maybe the bias that I might be carrying? How do I feel about discomfort and engaging in a process where I'm going to sit down with people that might have very different beliefs, you know, or come from very different knowledge systems? It requires us to really look inward and to do that work. And that's the first part of this process. Then the second part of the process is Eidoaptamank, you know, it sits at the center where you have sort of these two-eyed seeing. And in my conversations with Albert Marshall and talking about this, he said, you know, Tara Lynn, two-eyed seeing was needed during the time when it was brought forward. It was a way for people to sort of understand that there's another knowledge system that sits outside of Western knowledge system that was dominant and, and still is dominant today. He said, but everybody's using it now and they're using it in theory. And a lot of times they use it and it's, it's void of action. You know, it's void of accountability. It's, it's used in all these theoretical frameworks. And he said, when you bring about Meadowoptimunk that you and Mi'kmahan are doing, that really brings about the action pathway for people to understand. When we think of two-eyed seeing, people sort of clump Indigenous knowledge systems through one eye together, and Indigenous knowledge systems are vast. Indigenous sciences are vast. They're as vast as our languages. And so he said it's time for a new way of thinking, a new way of doing, a new way of knowing and being is needed, and that bringing about the sacred feminine, rematriating 
our language, when we do that, it brings about this more expansive meta-optimate way of being. And it's grounded in principles of relationality and care, you know. Anabhinasay Jim Dumont speaks about the different intelligences, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and spiritual. And Megha Mahan shares with me that at the center of those intelligences, the core intelligence is love. And it's like the glue, you know, it's like the center that holds everything together. And so this work and these guiding principles are needed when we move ahead along this pathway to sit, to invite different knowledge systems, different people with different ways of being and understanding, to sit together, to come to an understanding collectively as we continue in the work we need to do, specifically when it comes to evaluation and research. You know, we're responsible to understand and sense-make but we also are accountable to decolonize our analysis, <laughs> you know, the way we analyze and come to know. And so Metawaptamunk invites in different knowledge systems to play together, to understand. It not only brings in Western and Indigenous worldview, but it's more expansive and goes to the cosmos. It enables us to understand how to be, what to practice, and how to live into the work so that we can evolve spiritually our own selves so that we might be able to dance in that space a little bit easier and more effectively as we're working to unite the human family in the work that we're all doing together. So that's what Metawaptiment is. And I think about, you know, there's many principles that help guide us. And it's funny, you know, when I was talking about Metawaptiment, in my linear mind, I said, so is Metawaptamunk a principle? Because, you know, two-eyed seeing is a guiding principle. Is Metawaptamunk a principle? Is it a process? And the elder says, yes, and yes, it's all of that, you know? And so I just think that is, I kind of chuckle when I hear that because Metawaptamunk is about the more expansive, multidimensional way of being and understanding. And, you know, it, it doesn't want to sit in the rigidity of being a principle or a process. It's, it's all of that. And one of the core principles in it is honest kindness and kind honesty. And that was a teaching that I learned from Jane Middleton Moss again, is that she said, you know, when we sit in the center and we're bringing folks together, it's really important that we are comfortable with dealing with the tensions. You know, that's why that preparation, that healing work is so important for us as we enter into an evaluation process or a facilitating process or a hosting process or a research process that we do that work because we're going to have to navigate and hold space and work through those tensions that arrive. And we do that through honest kindness and kind honesty. And she said, you know, when you have to be honest with someone about something that you have to do it in a kind way, because there are things that we, we have to share sometimes, but to ground it in kindness and then honest kindness is that if we don't address those things or we don't say those things, it's actually unkind. So it behooves us to be present and to show up and to understand how to facilitate dialogues and conversations in this multidimensional space. And some folks, you know, we would say maybe in our systems field that it's bridging, you know, Metawaptamunk is bridging different worldviews, different knowledge systems together. And I think that's where we sit right now, that it's a bridging process. It teaches us how to be, how to walk in, uh, hold space. Some 
call that Willie Ermine, you know, that ethical space, that sacred space. It's that space in between. And we refer to that space as, you know, when we speak into, we're speaking in words and there's a word in our language that makes shared, uh, Eskidobidich, and it's actually the territory where she comes from. And she shares that she got into, when she was younger, a little disagreement with her brother about how to pronounce it. And he said, you pronounce it as Skidobidich. And she said, no, you say Eskidobidich. And her father corrected her and said, no, it's Skidobidich. And you don't pronounce the esk. The esk is actually a breath in Skidobidich. And that, that breath in of that first part silently releasing is our responsibility because we're connected to the energies and the frequencies of the words that we say and the things that we share. And so by breathing that into our bodies, we're responsible and tethered to what it is we're sharing. And so when my breath in a space meets your breath, that's where the spirit shows up. So Metawaptamunk enables us to create responsibilities. It gives us the preparation and understanding of what's needed to stand into those spaces, to navigate through the dialogues that are uncomfortable, to navigate through the discomfort, but also to understand our accountabilities. And that's why that first part, you know, get up to monk. That's why that healing work is, is so important. There's a lot of folks that I know that are doing systems change work and holding space and bringing about a, a lot of harm. There's a lot of folks that are engaging in evaluation and research that uh, consciously or unconsciously bringing about harm. And so for me, I think about ethics, you know, our ethics of care. And, and to do this work from an ethical space, we have to do that inner work. As you were sharing, I was picturing just like this Metawap, and I'm not going to say it right, I'm going to try. Metawapanuk? No. <laughs> Metawap de monk. Yeah. That it's like the air that's around us, like it's 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 holding everything. And so then when you share the teaching there around the breath that you breathe out and breathe in and that I breathe out and breathe in, and that's it creates the space of relational accountability, the responsibility for how we show up in these spaces and how we prepare ourselves and how we take care of ourselves as practitioners, as people who are, living and breathing and doing this kind of work in knowledge gathering, inquiry, evaluation, innovation, the responsibility that we have to show up to the best of our ability and to do no harm in that work. Like that's so, that that last message that you shared there, it's it's so true. How do we prepare ourselves? Because that's our responsibility. That's the first responsibility. Mm -hmm. And you know, I always recommend when we do this work, we have to have a strong foundation of self-inquiry and reflexive praxis, you know, and many folks don't learn that, <laughs> you know, a lot of times you learn that the hard way, you know, when you're engaging in your own practice and a lot of disciplines, you know, you and I come from a background of social work and in the social sciences where self-inquiry and reflexive praxis is something that, you know, hopefully we have learned. But bringing that about for folks that are doing this work is really important. And it can be really challenging because it's one thing to say it. It's a hard thing when you, you know, I, again, I shared my story about sitting in that circle and watching, you know, the family dynamic, the family systems of my own family. 
And then having really difficult conversations with my parents at the age of 26, 27, and 28 about my experiences. Like that requires us to have a lot of courage. It requires us to, you know, really go deep into the experiences. And that's why I always share my experiences because it's really hard to do. You know, we cultivate humility when we go through these processes and we understand the work that's needed. And that's why tethering that message that came around the sacred fire about tethering, spiritual tethering to the fire, sacred fire of creation is really important. So in the first part of that process of Ghetto Optima, we bring people around the sacred fire in a process and we teach them about what that sacred fire is, you know, the sacred fire that Turtle Island Institute is tethered to is the fire at Soul of the Mother Lodge. And that fire is connected to the first fire of creation, which is the fire that burns within our Earth Mother. And the second fire is the sacred fire of peace. We have one burning at the sacred lodge, but there's many fire of pieces that are burning all around our Earth Mother, and they're in many different faith traditions. And all those fires are connected as the second fire. The third fire of creation is the fire that burns within our grandmother moon. The fourth fire of creation is the fire that burns within, as we refer to grandfather, the sun. The fifth fire of creation is the fire that burns in the sky world where our ancestors are. The sixth fire of creation is the elders, the creator's council fire that burns through that Milky Way into the creator's realm around that uh, council fire. And the seventh fire of creation is the fire that burns within us. It's our own spirit. And so when we bring folks in to get Optimunk to understand and do the preparation that they need before they move into the space of inquiry, it's really connecting them to those seven fires of creation and really to, to look at doing the work that they need to show up in a good way to be able to not only to show up authentically with their whole self, and it takes work and it takes time, you know, but in doing that work to really evolve ourselves spiritually as two-legged beings, as as people on this inquiry, because when we do that, it enables us to build our relationships with the cosmos. And so that's where knowledge sits. Our knowledge sits with our ancestors. Our knowledge and wisdom sits there. And in order to access that, we have to do the work, you know, we we carry trauma in our bodies. We have blockages within our internal living systems. And we have to be able to move through that and unpack that. And as, as Mi'kmahan says, unwind the colonization within us to unravel that in order to rebuild, to access that realm of knowledge. So I think about if we're in an inquiry place of research and evaluation, and we're coming to know to understand how we need to navigate in this work that we're doing, having access to that realm is really important. And so if you're not doing the work, you're not going to have access to that innate wisdom and that spiritual realm. So it, it behooves us to, to do this work. And, and when we engage in that practice, as I mentioned in the last podcast, we might say in an imperial way, it opens us to so much data. <laughs> I don't want to talk about data, you know, because we've been decolonizing data, but it opens us up to so much wisdom from our ancestors. And that's the thing with Metoptimunk. It acknowledges that data sits everywhere. That, you know, not only do we listen and hear from what the trees are telling us, the seen and unseen speak to us as well. It really activates our learning centers for dreaming and other intuitions that 
we have lost and been disconnected to. So reconnecting us to our old ways, our old ancestral ways of coming to knowing and through those old ancient Indigenous technologies that we spoke about, one example being the sacred fire. So I think that, you know, where does knowledge sit? Where do we get data? Where do we help to understand the success metrics is, you know, that we create in our evaluation programs of understanding if we're on the right track, if we've made an impact. We have to, especially during these times with, again, the seven fires prophecy coming to fruition that I mentioned in the last podcast, we have to access those realms. Our Haudenosaunee faith keeper, Kevin Deere, he sits on our elder circle of knowledge carriers. He said one time in a workshop, the universe is my university. (laughs) And as a grad student, I just chuckled at that. And I said, yeah, it's mine too, (laughs) you know. And I I just love that the universe is my university. And and really, Metawaptamunk, what that does, that multidimensional process, multidimensional way of thinking, way of being, it enables us to live within the universe and come to know and understand through the universe. That really, for me, drives the point that you shared at the beginning, that two-eyed seeing was one piece of this work and embedded within a larger understanding of how we need to show up and how we need to engage in order to access this multidimensional space that is part of this rematriation of the sacred feminine. And so, you know, it seems to me that there's so much further to go when we think about how to prepare ourselves, not only as people who are reconnecting, connecting, going deeper within the nations that we live within and our relationship with. So at that individual level, but then also in the roles that we hold as inquirers, as evaluators, as learners, as storytellers, in order to understand, you know, the impact that some of the work that's happening in the communities is having. There's so much more that we can access and ways of learning that we can strengthen when we understand that two-eyed seeing was the beginning point of understanding this deeper, interconnected, multidimensional process. When we restore the sacred feminine in the Mi'kmaq language, we unveil Metawaptamunk. Metawaptamunk breathes spirit into complex spaces that have become disconnected from the spirit of life, and it provides a pathway to what my beloved late Tuscarora elder Rosa Mai refers to as awakening the learning spirit. Metawapta monk is also a pathway to transformative change. It's a pathway to deeper insight. It's a pathway to healing. And Metawaptamum cultivates a sense of belonging in a world of kin relations and reawakens this learning spirit by connecting us to ourselves, to each other, to our Earth Mother, and to all of creation. And, you know, I spoke about that seventh fire prophecy in the first episode of where we're at this critical time as a human family where we can choose to continue on that road of destruction, that road of of violence, that road of degradation of our Earth Mother and destruction of all our kin relatives and our resources, or we can choose sort of the spiritual road to work together as the human family towards lighting the eighth fire of peace. 
And Metawaptamunk is kindling the embers of the fire, that seventh fire towards the lighting of the eighth fire in that prophecy. And in that prophecy, the late Ed Benton in his book Mishomish, he, he says that there's a group of people that decided to take neither road, but they decided instead to turn back and to travel the road before them to remember and reclaim the wisdom of those who came before. And Metawaptamunk is a pathway to restoring what we have forgotten. And we do that through, in our process, healing our ancestral lineage. You know, part of the, the work is to understand our own lineage, our own stories. At the beginning of this podcast, I introduced myself more fulsome around my Irish lineage, and I've spent a year learning about the history of my people and, and the, the deep language and and the experiences um, which I was familiar with before of my family, where they came from, and the experience of their own colonization and own residential school system in Ireland, and how those experiences were brought forward through their bodies when they landed in Mi'kma'ki. And healing our ancestral lineage is, is really important because it reminds us, Metawaptama reminds us of this, it reminds us that it, we have to be in right relationships with our ancestors in order for us to ask them to help us to seek their wisdom and knowledge to move forward in a good way in the work that we do. We have to be healing ourselves and healing those lineages. And I want to share just a little bit more about wisdom and knowledge. I know in the first podcast I shared my perspective on the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and there's another layer to that. You know, I shared that the difference between knowledge and wisdom is lived experience. But, you know, just because we experience something, it doesn't make you wise. (laughs) To me, wisdom is healed pain, and you have to detach from the negative emotion of the experiences to change that perspective to be a, a positive one. That's called healing. That's the healed pain through those experiences. And when we can do that and heal our ancestral lineages, we can show up in these places and spaces on these inquiries we're doing. Whether we're a scientist in a lab, whether we're an evaluator, in this case, working in evaluation in Indigenous or even in non-Indigenous communities. And this is a process. Metawaptamunk is a process for everyone. You know, I spoke about that petroglyph. It's a sign for humanity. So Metawaptamunk really is in this time of prophecy where we have to look to Indigenous nations and wisdom traditions to help us move ahead forward. That's what Metawaptamunk does. Thank you so much, Terilyn. These are really important insights and opportunities for self-reflection around who we are and how we're able to show up as evaluators in our work in Indigenous evaluation. I want to offer an invitation. I know that you were wanting to share a story about a beautiful creation that happened as a result of spirit in your work around the sacred fire in the last 13 moons, and the different ways that story can come into a space. So I'll just leave it there and ask if you can share a little bit more about that story. We talked in our last podcast about song as validation. And so after my 13 moon journey, I was synthesizing, you know, all of the knowledge and not only trying to decolonize 
the way that I was analyzing this work, you know, tried to embed Indigenous ways throughout the whole year. I thought, how am I reporting back to this? I'd like to share this knowledge in a different way. So one of my colleagues that recently joined our team about six months ago, she's a beautiful seamstress and she makes a ribbon skirt. And I had asked her that we were having a gathering in June as the final gathering from my year-long journey around the sacred fire. And it was that Ab- Maui Dajik Ebajik, the coming together of sacred energy, feminine energies of creation. And we brought clan mothers and grandmothers around the sacred fire for four days And what we did with that knowledge was we put that knowledge into a ribbon skirt. And, you know, I was the one that journeyed for 12 months around the sacred fire for 13 moons. But she was a part of this process. And she said, I have a vision. I said, listen, take the knowledge from your four days and go ahead, create the visual of what you feel, of what you're coming to know. I don't own this process, even though I was the one journeying for 13 moons. You're here for a reason. So I'm curious as to... What are you coming to know? What might you contribute to this that you can see through your perspective and your experience and your lens that I can't see? It's funny. She texted me a picture of the images that she created, and I had sketched out my own images of as I was coming to know, and there's so many similarities. And so we created matching ribbon skirts to sort of synthesize and bring about the knowledge, you know, of all the teachings of that 13 moon journey around the sacred fire And we made a bundle blanket for Turtle Island Institute, and that is the foundational blanket for that journey. But it always has me thinking about how are we showing knowledge? You know, I'm in grad school, so of course you people want you to publish in academic journals and write your thesis and all of this stuff. And, you know, how do we share this knowledge in a way? I'm Mi'kmaq, we have our peaked caps, and many of us have in our cultures and in our way of being, we've always developed and created insignias into our clothing about who we are and represents how we are. So we're trying to bring that back. That's part of the rematriation as well, is bringing back and shining a light on a different way of speaking about the knowledge or the wisdom that we have. And that's why I'm so grateful to you, Gladys, through this podcast, because it's an opportunity for us to share orally and to storytell for many years, we have been forced to bring it things about and knowledge and our experiences about through written systems. And so I really am glad that there's now an opening for us to express this deep wisdom through a different way of being. Thank you. Art, creation, creative processes for sharing and expressing is something that I'm truly so passionate about. And I loved hearing the different ways that you've been thinking about it through ribbon skirt and bundle blankets and insignias and just ways that are in alignment with knowledge systems that we're trying to work within. And it also makes me think about, you know, this podcast, these conversations. I work within poetry and I was just at a conference where we created collective poetry, but the beauty of that was actually when it was spoken, when the words that were on the paper were expressed when the breath was offered into the space where we could all witness that learning and that journey. And I'm so inspired by the different ways that you've shared, that you've been able to share a story and tell a story. Again, we could sit for, I, I feel like hours, and I'm really looking forward to continuing these conversations with you. But 
do also want to recognize that this this last hour has probably taken a good chunk of energy and just wanted to ask if there's anything that you wanted to make sure to share as you kind of wrap up the thinking that you've been doing, and I'm sure that will continue to expand around your journey with the sacred feminine and and rematriation and the depths of, of language in this work. I'm really excited that we're talking about, you know, creativity and artistic expression. And I remember when I was a young person, I read a quote from the Métis leader, Louis Riel, and he says that, my people will sleep for a hundred years, but when they awake, it will be the artists who give them their spirit back. And I remember thinking as a young person, who are these artists that are going to do that? That's pretty profound. And then it wasn't until, you know, like my late 20s, early 30s that I realized that we're all the artists and that it's really cultivating our creative capacities uh, within each of us. And, you know, Metawaptamunk, is a pathway, you know, for all around seeing as whole person development to help us unlock our creative capacities. And, you know, it's really important that we cultivate, nurture, and support our imagination and creativity because reawakening those gifts is critical because creativity is our direct access to the spirit. And that's why turning ourselves is so important, turning ourselves inside out Because the thing that stifles creativity and imagination is our traumas, our traumas that are blocked within our bodies, within the spirit realm. And Metawaptamunk helps us, bring us through that process. And it's so important. And I'm excited because we're going to be embodying Metawaptamunk all around seeing. And we're going to be working on a project where we are going to be communicating Indigenous scientific knowledge through artistic expression on a 13-moon, four-season-long artistic journey. And so we're going to be starting in the spring, and we're just preparing that invitation and journeying with Indigenous scientists and Western scientists, academics, elders, and and young people on that journey. So we're going to be using Metawaptamunk as the process that we're going to be walking through. We're also going to be using Metawaptamunk as our evaluative process, too. So... You know, I love that Metawaptamunk is multidimensional. We can apply it to to anything that we're doing in our work. And I want to thank you, Gladys, for the time today to really talk about Metawaptamunk. It's something that we're just bringing about, Mega Mahan and myself, bringing it out. There's a lot of interest in that. It seems to be the pathway that's needed during these times. And I remember, again, in the inquiry when I was consulting with Senator Sinclair or the Honorable Murray Sinclair, now I guess he's not a senator, but... I remember him speaking at Innovation Gathering, and he said that, you know, innovation isn't always about creating new things, that sometimes innovation involves sort of looking back at the old ways and and bringing them forward. And I think, you know, that's what Metawaptamunk is. You know, we are rematriating our language, decolonizing our language, going back to the ancient old ancestral knowledge and wisdom through our language and bringing back, restoring the sacred feminine and through this pathway of Metawaptamunk, it's enabling us to do that. And, you know, I was thinking about Sinclair's words. And, you know, for many years, we've been told to, to think outside that box. And when we live outside the box, we get disconnected. And I think now it's time for us to center our Indigenous ways and think inside this circle, inside this lodge, around the sacred fire of peace and that's what we're going to be doing through all around seeing through Meadow Optimum. 
Wow, that sounds like an incredible journey to go on, and I really cannot wait to hear the stories that come out of that experience. Kinanaskit Mutin, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for spending time with me today, Terlin, and I look forward to continuing to learn more from the journey that you are taking. Egoste. I'm so glad you spent time with us today. I have a few notes to wrap up this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on your favorite streaming service, including Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, so that you don't miss an episode. Also, this podcast is self-supported, and I'm hoping to make the work more sustainable. So if you're finding the content interesting and valuable, please consider supporting Indigenous Insights through Buy Me A Coffee. You can find the link in the show notes. Finally, I would like to extend an invitation. If you are someone who has an interest in Indigenous evaluation and would like to have a conversation on this podcast, I would love to hear from you. Please send me a note and we can connect about your work, what you're learning, and the questions you're thinking about. That's it for this week. I look forward to sharing this space with you again soon. Ego safe.